0: Well, it is good to see your faces, at least part of them. Thank you for uh, being here this morning and being willing to wear masks, and we're just doing that for each other, and uh, I guess they say that it's helpful, and so we want to do that, whatever we can do to meet um, safely. Um, I am, however, glad that I got to take mine off to speak. Uh, I want to welcome uh, everybody on live stream as well, and we mean it when we say we understand that there are lots of good reasons for people to be here and for people not to be here, and, and uh, we just want to honor um, uh, your decision, and whatever it, is, whatever it is that you do, whatever is best, um, we are with you, and we are worshiping um, together. Have you ever heard someone say, the Bible was written by men and is therefore filled with, at best, myth, legend, and at worst, propaganda, contradictions, and errors, that that atheists are growing, Christianity is dying, and God is already dead. Life after death is simply the wistful longings of weak people who cannot imagine death brings the end of human existence. We are the masters of our own fate. It's time to leave such, listen carefully, it's time to leave such behavior controlling, childlike fantasies behind. What is most challenging is when the charges come from those in some position of authority. Parents, professors, or even pastors. You become a Christian in a non Christian family, and the parental ridicule begins. Some of you have experienced that. You enroll in a philosophy of religion class only to find the professor has no desire to propagate the Christian faith, rather only to pervert it or destroy it and condescendingly belittle your childish, uneducated beliefs. A pastor who was supposed to promote the faith teaches the resurrection was not an actual historical event. It only matters that Christ was, has risen in your hearts. Not a few have had their Christian faith shaken by such well-placed attacks. And I would suggest that such attacks come most often against the authority, the inspiration, and the inerrancy of Scripture. You see, destroy the Bible and you can eradicate the Christian faith. You know, with its rules regarding conduct, there it is again, and so regular attacks have come against the veracity or the truthfulness of the Bible, not least of which is Second Peter, the book we will begin today. What is interesting to note is that in this book, Peter warns against false teachers within the church, listen, who seek to pervert the Christian faith for their own egregiously sinful agendas. Eliminate the faith so I can live how I want. Keep that in mind. We will come back to that. You see, to, uh, to accept the Christian faith is to acknowledge yourself a sinner, accountable to an all-knowing, sovereign, holy, and good God to whom we must all give an account. And so, if I want to live in and enjoy my sin, God must die. Book of 2nd Peter has been called and I quote the ugly stepchild or the dark corner of the New Testament. Interestingly, in that corner belongs the books of the Bible that we are currently studying. They're called the general epistles. There are 8 of them: Hebrews, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd and 3rd John and Jude. And so, 2nd Peter the most challenging of that bunch has often, as a consequence, been overlooked even by Christians. Fewer commentaries and studies have been done on this book than perhaps any other. How does it deserve this dreadful reputation? Well, it, it doesn't really have to do with the content of the book. Although well it does deal with this practice of eliminating God so that I can sin freely, in fact, many of the few commentators of Second Peter have noted the book is listen, most appropriate for today. We need its message. but why the horrible reputation it 's related to two issues: first is authorship, that is who actually wrote Second Peter, and, and therefore second is called canonicity. That is, does it even belong in the Bible? You see the canon speaks of a straight edge, a measure, and it came to be used of the canon of scripture, the books that 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 that, that comprise the the Bible. Perhaps no New Testament book has gone through greater scrutiny and more attacks. Suggesting dismissal or outright removal, than Second Peter, its authenticity was questioned in the earliest days of the church by the church fathers. Although many quoted from it, and eventually all accepted it, Eusebius, who had one of the earliest lists of books of the Bible, uh, early fourth century, listed Second Peter um, among what is called the disputed books largely the general epistles. On through the Reformers, the concerns continued. To the present day, listen, when most scholarship dismisses Peter's authorship and therefore question its rightful place in the Bible. Speaking of the Reformers, Luther called it a second-class book. Calvin reluctantly accepted it. Erasmus rejected it altogether. What are we to do? R.C. Sproul told the story of a critic of the Bible who suggested that there were actually thousands of letters and books written in the first couple of centuries of Christianity most vying to be declared Scripture. So how did the church decide which books were in and which books were out? How did they, with those thousands from which to choose, end up with a mere 27 books? Certainly, this critic suggested, they must have missed some, right? We're missing some Bible. And so, you've no doubt heard of the so-called lost Gospels, such as the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Philip, the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Peter, for example, But the issue has also now become how many of those 27 books which made it in should not be in. And so through the last couple hundred years especially, the Bible has come under constant attack through an academic process called higher criticism, and the authorship which points to its authority and inspiration and inerrancy of many books of the New Testament have been questioned, some books altogether dismissed. Again, none has been more attacked, none, than Second Peter. As it relates to authorship, the first of those two issues, skeptics say, well, the the greek of first and second peter are far too different to have been written by the same guy never mind that both books say they were written by peter besides they say the greek is too advanced and too hellenistic to have been written by a lowly galilean fisherman further they say the subject matter of the two books is well it's too different never mind that it was written for two different purposes Oh, also, 2 Peter has 57 words that are not used in the rest of the New Testament. 32 are not even found in the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. 14 are not even found in other Greek literature of the day. The guy was obviously brilliant with an expansive vocabulary. Couldn't be Peter. How do you know? Not only that... Did you know that almost all of Jude is found in 2 Peter? I I think it's like 18 or 19 verses of Jude are are, are referenced or quoted in 2 Peter, largely chapter 2. So, someone must have copied someone. That is, either Jude copied Peter or Peter copied Jude. That's the popular opinion. Or perhaps they both copied a source no longer available to us. And, well, since Jude wrote after the time of Peter, don't really know that, but that's what said if Peter copied Jude, couldn't be Peter. It's circular reasoning. And certainly the Apostle Paul would not have copied lowly Jude. And besides all that, the problems addressed in the letter did not arise until the second century. It's called Gnosticism. Never mind that Gnosticism is not addressed. In Second Peter, the scholars say that it is. Listen, argument after argument is given as to why Peter did not actually write the book that bears his name. And so they suggest the book was actually written much later, probably early in the second century, and this is called pseudepigraphy. That is, someone wrote... In the name of Peter, to, to gain or to garner acceptance and trust, and usually when you did that, by the way, it was to introduce some new teaching, some different teaching, some unorthodox teaching. That, by the way, is how they were able to eliminate most of those thousands of works. They were subbiblical or outright heresy. Peter was a favorite name to choose. I mean, it did happen. I mean, certainly if you wanted a letter to be accepted, why not go for broke? Use the name of Peter, the chief of the apostles. Did you know, for uh, for example, that there are many pseudonymous writings from the second century long after Peter died who which bear his name, such as the the Apocalypse of Peter, the Gospel of Peter, the Teaching of Peter, the Letter of Peter to James, the Preaching of Peter, just to name a few of many books which obviously and rightly did not make it into the Bible. Second Peter, the critics say, belong in that not-actually-Peter group. You're going, so what's the big deal, Scott? You see, further, they say, if the letter was not written by Peter, why it actually doesn't belong in the Bible, which leads to the second issue of canonicity, which means, of course, lowly people, let me educate you. The Bible isn't really inerrant and authoritative. And before you know it, we become judges over the Bible. We decide... We decide, instead of being under the authority of Scripture, we decide what's in and what's out. You see that, by the way, in many modern issues. The authors of the Bible, for example, did not understand the complexities of gender identity and sexuality. So those well-intended but outdated passages on those subjects must be dismissed. You see how out of touch you are. I trust you have detected some sarcasm since I do fully accept the authorship and canonicity of 2 Peter and the other 65 books of the Bible for that matter. Now listen, over the last several weeks I read introductions from 14 different commentaries, conservative commentaries, I might add, hundreds of pages, and every argument against Second Peter can be answered. Every one. Now, to be clear, all 14 of those books acknowledge that there are concerns. Consider these statements. Among all the books of the New Testament, none has been more disputed as to canonicity and authorship than Second Peter. No New Testament document ha- had a longer or tougher struggle to win acceptance than Second Peter. Love this one. Second Peter is often ignored because of its brevity. I had to chuckle <laughs> because I want to make this bad boy last for six months. <laughs> because scholars question its authenticity. If one were inclined to doubt the authenticity of any letter in the New Testament, it would be Second Peter. And so here we are. What are we doing? I could go on. Th- the point is, I want to acknowledge there are some challenges. But why do I, and why am I suggesting that you should accept the authorship and therefore canonicity and authority and, and biblical inerrancy of Second Peter? Well, let's consider what the internal evidence, this is what it's called, that is, what does the book itself say about the author? Well, first, the author identifies himself in the first verse as Simon Peter. Seems kind of clear. And and by the way, it is actually Simeon Peter that would have been his more personal Aramaic name used only one other time in the Bible in Acts chapter 15. Would someone pretending to be Peter use that obscure name? Or would he rather use Simon, which was more widely known? Unless, of course, it was Peter who knew his personal name quite well. The author, second, says he was a witness of the transfiguration. That narrows it down to like three. The author places himself on the level with the Apostle Paul. He calls him our our beloved brother, my beloved brother. Whereas uh, in the second centuries, they spoke of Paul in very reverential terms. He called him my brother. He put himself on the same level. The author, and also speaks to the fact that he knew him. The author identifies himself as having written a previous epistle, likely 1 Peter. The author recalls the Lord's prediction of his death. That probably is a reference to... John chapter 21, when Jesus told him, you're going to die, the, the, the critics say, see, this couldn't be Peter because John, John, John's gospel wasn't written for decades after Peter died. Well, I don't know. Maybe he didn't have to refer to John chapter 21. Maybe he referred to it because it happened to him. Interestingly, skeptics look at this strong list and say, well, the author tries too hard to make himself look like Peter. <laughs> Those personal examples of the transfiguration, the prediction of his death are, quote, an anxious effort to make the readers think it truly came from Peter. Of course, the conservative response, my response to this assertion is the reason that it sounds like it came from Peter is that it came from Peter. Second, what do we do with this off stated charge of pseudonymity or pseudepigraphy, which, by the way, literally means fake or bogus writing? Right there in your Bible. Well, again, the book claims to be written by Peter. If we believe in inerrancy, and I do, then this is a problem. Everything about the letter claims to have been written by Peter which means there is a degree of deception or error in the book. Second, authorship was a central concern, was a central concern to the early church when they put the New Testament canon, those books, together. Authorship was one of the tests of canonicity. It had to be from an apostle or a close associate of the apostle. Would they knowingly have accepted a book, claimed to be written by Peter, when they knew that it was written by someone else, whoever it was? Why would they do that? Third, Paul himself cautions against this practice of pseudonymity. In Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2, he clearly says, listen, you're going to get letters purported to have come from me. In other words, it's going to say from Paul, don't believe it. Don't accept it. He discouraged the practice. And lastly, very interestingly, in the early church, the gospel of Peter, huh, was being widely circulated, but it was discovered to be a pseudonymous that is not written by Peter Work, and Serapion, the bishop of Antioch, soundly condemned it. The problem was not that it, the gospel was explicitly heretical. It was pseudonymous and therefore not trustworthy. Listen to me very carefully. Despite what you've heard in your philosophy of religion classes… While the practice of pseudonymity was widely used in ancient times, that is true. There is not a shred of evidence that it was accepted by the early church. In fact, it was regularly and unanimously condemned. I could go on and on, already have. But all of the arguments against Peter writing the book and therefore against it belonging in the Bible can be effectively explained. Do not listen very carefully to me. Do not let someone with a bunch of letters behind their names cause you to doubt your faith. You do understand that if they are attacking the Bible, it's because they're not even a Christian. Why would you listen to them? Yes, it is true. it took some time to be accepted, but eventually, everyone accepted Second Peter: church fathers, reformers and present conservative scholars. Now let me quickly answer some other introductory questions necessary. First, when was the letter written and from where? It, it, it actually, we don't know for sure, but we can narrow it down. Early, reliable tradition places Peter in Rome during the last couple decades of his life. Remember in Acts chapter 12, after he was released from prison, went to Mary's house, uh, wrote to it, didn't let him in. We talked about that last week. That, that's the last we see him until Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council. That's it, he disappears. Uh, we know from uh, Galatians that he was spent some time in Antioch. Uh, we know that um, he probably spent some time in Corinth, but early, reliable tradition says he, after traveling about, he spent some time, his last years, in um, Rome. That same tradition says he was martyred during the persecutions under Nero, as was Paul, sometime before 68 AD. 68, because that's when Nero died. In chapter, if chapter 3, verse 1 which refers to an earlier letter, is 1 Peter, which was written about 63 or 64 A.D. Then 2 Peter, just we can deduce, was probably written between, 60, if you're taking notes, between 65 and 67 A.D. Again, from Rome, right before his death. Some even suggest that he was um, in prison when he wrote this, facing imminent death. In that respect, some call 2 Peter Peter's testament or his swan song, much like Second Timothy is uh, to Paul. Now, to whom did he write? Again, if chapter 3 refers to 1 Peter, the earlier letter, then the recipients would be the five provinces of Asia Minor mentioned in 1 Peter chapter 1, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Um, but all he says when he writes in verse 1 of chapter 1 is, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. We're going to talk about that more next week. But all I can say very definitively is that Peter wrote to Christians, that means you. Why did he write? What was his purpose? This, this is extremely important. Okay? So so tune back in. Peter seemed to understand that his time was short. And that God's people were facing some significant dangers, challenges. He wrote his first letter to speak of external dangers, opposition and persecution from without. We saw that over the last several months, right? He wrote his second letter to express his concern of dangers coming from within, from false teachers. Very interestingly, the word false teachers is pseudo-didaskaloi, fake teachers, Just as sheep are prone to wander, so Christians are prone to forget the basics of the faith. So 2 Peter is a reminder of the basis of our faith, and it is a warning against false teachers. Do you suppose that is necessary for today? Let me give you a brief outline of the book that we'll be following. We'll see the next week, Lord willing, we'll see the uh, salutation, the introduction, then the, the nature of the Christian life, that is, be holy in chapter 1, and then the warning against false teachers who were saying just the opposite. And then the third point in the third chapter, the certainty of Christ's return leading to our conclusion. Now, I know that this has been a, lot of, a bit of an academic lecture. I know that. Introductions to books usually are of necessity, but if you've tuned out, now is the time to tune back in for just a moment as I've got just a little bit left. Again, the main issue is dealing with false teachers within the church. In doing so, he covers a couple of, of other main themes. That is, the deity of Jesus, most glorious, and the inspiration of Scripture, you see, because, which is quite interesting given the fact that skeptics want to deny this book. Main concern, however, is false teachers. In fact, consider this outline that structures the book around answers to these false teachers, Okay. Um, answer number one, holiness matters. The f- false teachers were saying it didn't. Answer number two, we're not making this up. Answer number three, God's judgment is certain. Answer number four, the, the parousia or the, or, or the second coming is on its way. Given those answers, what he addresses, what were the questions, if you will, or what were the tenets, not tenets, tenets that the false teachers were propagating? Their, their, their teachings in reverse went like this. And the reason we're going to look at them very briefly this morning in reverse is because you will see how one builds on the other and they end up where they end up. And it is a warning to us. If you start denying the truth of Scripture, it's where you'll end up. They said four things. First, Christ is not coming back. We see that in chapter 3, again, in reverse. This is obviously the central heresy that Peter deals with. The teaching of the scoffers went something like this. It's been a long time. Come on. It's been a long time. Things have been the same since the beginning of creation. Jesus is not coming back. Where is this supposed coming that he promised? And they were talking about this in 60, in the mid-60s AD. It's been 2,000 years. Have you ever heard that before? Where is this promise of Jesus' return? We'll talk about that when we get to chapter 3, but Peter gives three answers to these scoffers to disprove them. First is the sovereignty of God. They were saying, it doesn't look like he knows what he's doing. He's not in control. He's never intervened. Everything's just the same since the beginning of time. And Peter responds by reminding them that God had indeed intervened in the past through creation and the flood. Have you ever heard the flood never happened Have you ever heard creation didn't happen? Yeah. We conveniently forget the truth of Scripture because we want to deny the reality of God. He reminds them of creation, the flood. Flood becomes the paradigm for the second coming. He destroyed the world the first time by water. You've conveniently forgotten that, and he's going to destroy it the second time by fire. Second, the w- w- way that he deals with it is the time frame of God. Peter says, you act like it's been a long time, but God's time is not our own. You know that. A thousand years like a day, a day like a thousand years. That's his argument there. Uh, his sense of time is different. Don't be confused, and I would say to you today, and I'm gonna say it over and over through our time together, don't be bothered by the fact that Jesus hasn't come back yet. There's a reason, which is the third one. God's patient. God is patient. God is waiting for people to repent. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But I want you to listen to me very carefully. There is coming a time when he will no longer wait. There is coming a time when the last person to be saved will be saved, and he will come back. Regardless of what you hear. Second, first teaching... Christ is not coming back, builds on that first one since Jesus, second one since Jesus is not coming back, God will not judge us. He will not judge us now. He will not judge us in the future. Peter's answer, God has always judged evil in the past. Peter mentioned several events in history in which God did judge. Remember the fallen angels? Remember the flood? Remember Sodom and Gomorrah? The point is God has judged, and you better mark it down. He's going to judge again leads to the third false teaching that the apostles have made up the second coming. It's not going to happen. Now, it's thought that the false teachers said something like this. The apostles made it up to scare you into obedience, to control your behavior. Peter's argument, response, is his apostolic witness. We were there. On the mountain, when we got a glimpse of the divine majesty, a precursor to the second coming. Not only that, there is the certainty of God's word. The word speaks of the second coming; we can count on it for sure. The authoritative inerrant. Isn't that interesting? That everybody today wants to assail the inerrancy and authority of Second Peter. No da! because they want to deny that Jesus, that God will come back and judge. Which leads to the last one, final false teaching. And this is so relevant for today. This is the way it went. Since Jesus is not coming back, I mean, they they made it all up. There will be no judgment now or in the future. So here it is. We can live however we want. And for these false teachers, it was living in sexual immorality and greed, among other things. Peter's answers are found in chapter 1. Listen. Listen. Listen to me very carefully, brothers and sisters. Holiness matters. If you call yourself a Christian, how you live matters. Further, God has given us all the power we need need to live holy lives, and our holiness will result in future reward. Do you see how relevant this is? What you believe impacts your behavior. Beliefs and behavior go together. They are inseparable. So if you want to... Behave a certain way, you must align your beliefs to do so. So, for example, I suppose for most of us, if we believe there is a God, we believe He's coming back, and that He will judge, then we will seek to live our lives in such a way as to be found faithful. Of course, we understand the rest of the scripture on that point. The gospel teaches that we cannot live that way by ourselves, we are born sinners. And so that the same God in the person of his son Jesus came to die for sinners so that we could be forgiven, so sin could be removed when the judgment comes. Further, he has given us his Holy Spirit by whom we can right now live holy lives. We don't live holy lives to be saved. We live holy lives because we have been saved. Is this supposed to control our conduct? You bet. But if you want to live in sinful rebellion, then you must do something about this belief that God is coming back to judge. So just deny the belief and you can live however you want. Deny the authority that is over you. You can live however you want. Seattle. This problem is as old as the Garden of Eden. Did God really say? Deny what he says and you can do what you want. I cannot tell you how many I have known who rejected the Christian faith because they wanted to live in ways contrary to the Scripture. And so the next time someone tells you Christianity is false, or there is no God, or the Bible is in error, or it is wrong, and now you know why I spent so much time at the beginning, the Bible is wrong, understand that behind that desire, uh, behind that Denial is a desire to live in sinful rebellion every time. The next time you want to reject a certain belief, a biblical belief, check your motives. I dare say most of the time a desire for sin is at the root of your rejection. The last thing I will say is this and then I'm done. Some suggest that the reason Second Peter is routinely ignored is because it's, it's just so negative, right? I mean, it exposes false teachers. You guys don't like it when I do that. When I name names, people come up, You used to name names, oh, okay. It reminds us of holy living. It reminds us that judgment is coming. All of which are true. And as a pastor, it is my responsibility to warn you. Consider the words of Professor Doug Moo as we close. I close with these words. Most of us don't like to focus on the negative. I get that. Maybe that's why 2 Peter and Jude would probably come toward the last of most people's list of favorite books in the New Testament. We need to hear the negative now and then that we might be warned about the dangers and steer clear of them. Peter and Jude found themselves in situations where the negative was needed. Thus, Jude and Peter also wrote about false teachers. Pulling no punches, they labeled these teachers for what they were. Given the option of choosing on our television cable service or live stream, the kind of sermon we would like to hear on Sunday morning, not many of us would probably choose denunciation of false teachers. Tell me how to be a good father on Father's Day. But it might be the message we need the most.